Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. From Disaster Recovery Journal and Asphalus Advisors. Now, here's your host, Vanessa Vaughn Matthews. Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. I am your host, Vanessa Vaughn Matthews, the founder and chief resilience officer of Asphalus Advisors. We have an accomplished guest today speaking on the topic of what has risen to the level of concern. So let's jump right in and meet our guest, Philip Biggie, the Senior Vice President of Customer Solutions Group at Continuity Logic. Philip, thank Vanessa, you so much for joining us today. This is, this is awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is my first podcast, so very excited to, oh, it's a first. to have a discussion officially with you that's being recorded, which can be somewhat dangerous. It is a bit dangerous. So let me go ahead and give our listeners a warning. I cannot be responsible for what comes out of Philip's mouth, okay? <laughs> Um, so for those of you who actually don't know, we are at the DRJ Fall 2019 conference. So it's it's been a great week. We're in the desert of Arizona. And um, I had the luxury of sitting and looking at Philip and all of his facial expressions. So for those of you who, who know him, this is going to be a, a treat. The, the, luckily, we're not on uh, a video. That, that didn't go so well last DRJ conference. <laughs> So can you tell our listeners more about you and how you got into the world of business continuity? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, so I, I was offered a, a job from Towers Perrin in 1997, back in the time when there really wasn't a heck of a lot of formal training for disaster recovery business continuity, but they felt as though I had the right pedigree. I have a special education degree, so I'm able to take very complex things and, uh, and put them in very simple terms. But I also had a very good uh, computer background as well. And so I went from a special education uh, brief career to being a computer consultant. And then they thought, you know, they could put two and two together. And look, I was 24, 25 years old. Uh, I saw this industry being on the ground floor and something I could make a career of for the rest of my life. And the rest is history. I became a manager of Towers Perrin uh, Disaster Recovery with a global program within five to six months. And here I am 20 some odd years later speaking to you on the podcast. So this is fantastic. So give me a highlight of those next 20 plus years that landed you at Continuity Logic. Ah, ah well, first, let's say uh, I was fortunate that I took the job at Towers Perrin and not to be a Lotus Notes consultant at Deloitte & Touche. Uh, I turned that job down for more money uh, at Deloitte & Touche to take less money at Towers Perrin, but it ended up uh, working well. And my wife ended up uh, having a really good five-year career at Towers Perrin. I uh, was moved to California to lead Countrywide Financial's business continuity uh, program and their global program. That turned into Bank of America, which turned into an opportunity at One West Bank to lead their program. And then after 16 years of leading global business continuity programs, I was being asked quite a bit on uh, leading practices, not only from business continuity, but how to operate within a large complex organization. I was being asked quite a bit and I felt as though that I could contribute more to this industry by officially helping people out from a capacity of being a consultant with Ripcord Solutions. And then of course, um, I have a great passion for um, seeing that software is a good driver to accomplish your goals in global business continuity programs. And notice last year there was a big gap between delivering cool software stuff and what's really needed from a business acumen perspective with global programs, it just made sense to join Continuity Logic. It's a great platform. There's a lot that we, we can do with it with our customers and our future customers. It's the most flexible out there. Uh, it just seemed right. Good team, great software. Here I am. 
So why did you choose to leave leadership levels within the various organizations that you were serving to join a risk management software solutions company? People who've known me for a while uh, knew that I was very passionate in my uh, leadership career from global organizations to contribute to um, uh, the improvement of software in the late 90s and in the 2000s. I was a part of various technology advisory boards and user group advisory boards because I was able to take technology and apply it to doing uh, strategic goals and objectives, understanding and analyzing run rate costs, how we can reduce run rate costs by the use of software. Yes, you, you spend X amount of dollars on software, but what's that true reduction in cost and value and increased value to your organization by using software? And so while I, I've had a great career leading global uh, organizations, I do have a true passion for technology and to helping many organizations out as much as I can in my career. And so it's a, it's a great thrill right now to be helping dozens upon dozens of customers of ours um, really achieve their goals by using software. And so it's, it's, it's uh, personally satisfying to me. So I have had the chance to uh, read the Adaptive Business Continuity book. Mm. And when I first opened the page, it was very interesting that it was dedicated to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if I'm not mistaken, I believe Mark Armour dedicated it to you and his wife. So yeah. uh, tell me a little bit more about that, because I don't know if I've sat next to, to a person who the book was actually dedicated to ever. Uh, fun, so <laughs> so fun fact, I didn't know about it until uh, a, a colleague of ours in our industry actually was previewing the book on Amazon going, hey, did you know the book is dedicated to you? That's really cool. I was like, what are you talking about? And you, you know, go on Amazon and then you, you pull it up. It's certainly on page three of the of the dedication page or wherever it landed. Yeah, there I was. Um, anybody who's listening, I know Adaptive BC is a, uh, a very passionate uh, uh, subject. So look, if you have a DeLorean uh, or PIM particles or a hot tub time machine and, uh, you know, you, you disagree with Adaptive BC, you can go back in time to 1997 and encourage me to take that job with Deloitte & Touche and that would be taken care of. So the fact is, is that uh, when I worked for Countrywide Financial, Mark Armour had the right pedigree, like some of the leaders who hired me back in 1997 thought I had the right pedigree to be a good leader in this industry. Mark had the same things, and I recognize that in the middle of the decade, uh, where he's a good instructor at the loan administration division at the time. He had a good head on his shoulders. He's really good with technology. He's very eloquent in, in, uh, in his speaking style. Brought him on board. Uh, we put him in leadership programs. Certainly, he, he excelled. He moved from California. I put him in a leadership position in, in Dallas, Texas, where he was taking care of our operations in the central and eastern time zone, and, and in many respects, it kind of across the ocean into Europe when I was still asleep in California. And he really took to heart my, uh, some of my passion about our industry, the business acumen skills that our leadership teams from our uh, managing director and chief administration officer instilled in us um, and really took it to the next level. Anyway, that's how Mark uh, Armour came into this industry. And I think people should walk in the shoes for a little bit when I brought him in, we were always told to do what was right for our organization. And during the middle part of the decades, there was a lot of disasters that Countrywide was experiencing through Katrina, uh, through the hurricane. The, the, there were four other hurricanes during that year that crisscrossed Florida. There were more hurricanes and, and really bad uh, uh, storms in 2005. So 
we had a program where we instilled a lot of muscle memory into our divisions, our business leaders to know what to do, how to recover, all that sort of stuff. And quite frankly, we came through all of those storms by instilling more important skills about what to do during a disaster, how to successfully recover, collecting the right amount of data in order to tell the story to senior leadership so they can make decisions. And there wasn't time at the time to go through a big long process of a six month BIA or a year long process to do some sort of complete analysis paralysis thing. We need to respond right away and we need to be proactive to help our business units uh, be prepared for all these constant disasters that were occurring. And there were hundreds of thousands of people who were impacted by this. That all being said, we were very successful at this. We still did a BIA when the, when the time permitted. We still had to follow the FFIAC standards. I think the lesson out of, uh, and this is kind of the heart of Adaptive BC, is how can you do things better, faster, smarter, because we needed to execute sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning when the disaster struck or there were some significant hurricanes coming in where hundreds of people were going to be left homeless and potentially jobless, and we needed to react. They were counting on us to, to have a plan in place and, and for leadership to respond in, in a muscle memory format. So. The fact that Mark Armour is challenging the industry and his partner, David Lindstedt, you know, it's a healthy challenge. And I'd ask our industry not to be so emotional on LinkedIn. Well, so I'm glad that you said that because mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's clear. I mean, if you read anything in the business continuity world or disaster recovery world, I would call this, quote unquote, political climate, this whole conversation about adaptive. Sure. Um, you know, some people uh, don't agree with the term of traditional versus non-traditional. Some people don't see that it should be recognized at all. You know, and going back to the topic of what has risen to the level of concern, my concern with that is you can't force innovation. You can't just schedule a meeting and title it innovation meeting and innovation is gonna come out of the meeting, right? Sure. Our job to your point as leaders are to enable innovation to be there. So my question, I wanna know, are we cutting off people from being able to innovate? Adaptive seems to be met with this, um, you know, it's like going to a Thanksgiving dinner and no one says hello. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's not a happy encounter is what I see on social media. And I just wonder, are we being closed minded? Are we prohibiting people from being innovative? Are we choosing not to grow? Who is anybody to say that adaptive is not the next thing or whatever is going to come after adaptive, right? I just wonder. I, I get concerned when um, there is an absolute being declared, either on the adaptive side or the ISO side or which, whichever, uh, or Give DRJ practices. So, I mean, we've seen uh, on LinkedIn, how dare you say that you shouldn't do a BIA because ISO says that we should do a BIA. And if people want to adapt ISO, I think our community and our leaders need to read the room. What does the organization that I work for, what's going to be most receptive to the audience? What's going to be most receptive to leadership? Um, are they being told by the regulators to go through um, a big, long process by, uh, and that's what they're expecting? Well, then you might want, and they are uh, really looking to ISO as the standard to follow, which there is uh, a lot of legitimacy. Back at Towers Parent, we were ISO certified. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in ISO standards because if you are in manufacturing or in some sort of processing, ISO stand, if you're ISO certified, you're seen as a trusted entity. 
Cool. Adapt ISO. If you want to be looking at ways to accomplish your goals and do it better, faster, cheaper, adaptive might be for you. You might want to combine both ISO and adaptive and maybe some, if you're in a hospital environment, some uh, standards coming from Joint Commission and NIST. You need to read the room and really decide what's best for your organization and how you can grow your organization. And that may be multiple ways of adapting across the way. So uh, my last point, uh, Vanessa, is while it's very emotional in the United States, Mark Armour and Dr. Ruth Macy and I spoke at our um, at Continuity Logics event in the Shard over in the UK. It was a very civil discussion I about heard. good ideas being being played back and forth. And uh, while in the United States it seems like Thanksgiving dinner, nobody is uh, talking to each other. <laughs> I, I believe Thanksgiving was brought up as an example in the United Kingdom that wow, it's nice to have family come together and talk to each other with wow. different ideas. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned NIST, ISO, et cetera. What is your view on Adaptive BC compared with the rest of the standards? I, I think Adaptive BC is a uh, business practice that should be examined and you make the decision for yourself. That does not mean you can skirt the regulatory standards coming from the FFIEC or Joint Commission. You know, thou shalt. And so, look, at, at Continuity Logic, I'm not about to throw away the, the business impact assessment. In fact, the, our, a lot of our customers are getting a lot of value from the business impact assessment. Um, and they're also finding value in doing it in a way which is very advantageous to them. And as long as the regulatory bodies and are uh, requesting certain things should be in place, well, then those things need to be in place. I think adaptive should be one of a number of business practices which could be implemented if it's right for your organization. I think it's just one of many. And I think not only can we learn from the adaptive people, but quite frankly, Vanessa, they can learn from you. They can learn from um, the good folks that DRJ is putting forth uh, in their conferences. I think we need to be very inclusive in our approach to business continuity. The more we can surround ourselves with people who do things better than we do, the better off we're going to look as leaders. I like that. And so you said, number one, you started by talking about the leadership qualities you found in Mark Armour. So I want to mm -hmm. piggyback on that. You also talked about being inclusive. So I'm going to ask one more question about adaptive and we're going to move on to some of your other concerns. Um, where do you see adaptive business continuity going? And here's why I'm asking. So because I want to help you understand my thought process here. So it's what we do in our organizations. We're change agents. We help to show leaders and reveal things to them that they may not see hidden in plain sight. And then we help them manage that process, which is change. And oftentimes it's a behavior change. Yeah. So let's let's say the vision for adaptive is that 40 to 50 percent of the business continuity market picks it up. Now, Dr. David Linson nor Mark Armour have given me those numbers. So I'm just literally just throwing out a random number here. Right. Mm -hmm. But let's say that that's where they want to go. Mm -hmm. My question to you, going back to leadership qualities, going back to being inclusive, where do you see it going? Uh, I, I see an awful lot of interest in the industry, again, to do things a little bit differently. Um, we are getting calls from uh, either our current customers or prospective customers on, 
you do adaptive. So they're taking a look at it, um, and I think there's genuine interest in this. I don't, I don't know what the overall goal or, or percentages are. I'm not associated with the, the, the adaptive organization. But as far as leaders go, if you adapt one standard or one way of doing something that's an absolute, I think you're shutting yourself out from being as innovative as your organization is desiring because there's going to be more risk coming in. There's going to be different customer demands coming from you. And if you're too rigid in your approach by following one standard or one regulation, you're going to miss out on the advantages that a number of people who are leading in this industry can can help you with. Again, try and surround yourself with as many people who can help you innovate as much as possible. Got it. Okay. So, you know, we're talking here about standards and yeah. approaches and business practices. What do you see as a true leading standard for business continuity? You've mentioned ISO a couple of times. Yeah. Is is ISO it? I, I think, again, <clears throat> a lot of, uh, if you're in manufacturing or, or some sort of processing uh, of something, um, ISO is seen as a, as a really good uh, standard. Um, I personally have concerns over some of the new ISO standards coming out. There was a LinkedIn post with a picture of the people who put the new ISO standards together. I have personal concerns. There are some who can financially benefit from deeper ISO standards, putting those ISO, ISO standards together. I believe that they're well intended, but you have to ask the question. So I, that's why I encourage everybody to look at a number of standards or a number of leaders out there who are putting forth uh, new ways of thinking. I have personally seen a really cool standard coming out of uh, England. The Bank of England put out a position paper over the summer uh, and it profoundly changed my thinking that business continuity should be planned by looking at the products that you put forth to your customers. Rather than looking at just the internal processes, uh, you need to connect those internal processes to the, to the products that you provide to your customers. And when you think about it, if you can put things in terms of, I deliver a loan to a customer, I deliver this particular drug to a patient, and if you can do end-to-end -end processing and put that together, what are all the applications for this product? What are all the underlying processes for this product and represent the product to your senior leadership? That's what the Bank of England is asking you to do. So it's called end-to-end -end processing or sometimes what we call front-to-back processing, where we take what we've all learned over the last many years of business continuity and now let's apply it to the products which are being delivered to our customers. It's really a profound change, which I think is going to catch fire here. So you dropped a little bit of a bomb on us and then you went right into a recommendation. So I appreciate you with presenting a problem and a solution, but I want to go back to the problem. Let's go back to the problem. <laughs> so you said that, you know, your concern is that people may be able to personally or financially benefit from this ISO standard. How do you stop that? Quite frankly, I don't know. I, I like to, let's, let's put it this way. I should be hearing from my customers. They're the ones in the field who are applying the practice. I should not be dictating something which, as, as, a, as something that everybody should be doing, then I profit from it. I, 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 I get uncomfortable with that, and I, I hope that, that comes across. Um, I, I'm, I'm not being a, um, you know, personally accusatory of anybody, uh, certainly on, on the committee, but I do it is concerning. I mean, you know, if the uh, chairman of Coca-Cola 
was put in charge of the Food and Drug Administration, I'd have a lot of concerns over that. I'm sure it's well-intended and Coca-Cola produces some really good products, which can be healthy. I think we're drinking some water from Coca-Cola right now, but you know, certainly it's, uh, it would be a concern of mine if that pendulum keeps tilting toward um, you know, people who can profit from creating deeper standards. Like for example, ISO came out with a business impact analysis standard. Is it really necessary? You know, I've seen people do business impact assessments completely different across the board, and they're all right. So is there really one standard we should be following for a business impact assessment? So you're an old dog, man. I'm an old dog. <laughs> old dog in this industry. I'm still a young pup. He paid me to say that, guys. <laughs> I'm still a young it was, pup. It was a struggle for me. Yeah. Um, you're an old dog in this industry, but you're a young pup. What has changed recently? You, you know, it's funny. Um, while we... Um, get concerned certainly over uh, you know the the older practices of let's say doing a business impact assessment or doing a risk analysis and do we need to waste our time with that I think uh, something that's risen to a level of concern is the risks to our organizations have changed drastically over the last couple of years just the couple of years I think there's a political environment which is uh, not advantageous to us and I think we need to take a look at those old risk assessments of what's my risk of a tornado or a hurricane or a volcano or whatever it is and we need to we need to turn it around um, understand our political environment understand that a lot of the risks are coming from inside our walls not necessarily outside our walls so take for example if I heard a siren going off outside 10 years ago I would think that they're testing the system a couple years ago in Hawaii, they tested the system. People legitimately thought that North Korea was firing missiles. We wouldn't have thought that 10 years ago. People took it darn seriously. The risks have changed. I gave a, a speech to the uh, uh, Los Angeles IIA, uh, Internal Auditors Association, and uh, uh, there are statistics out there from OSHA where workplace violence has significantly increased, uh, sexual harassment to our employees has significantly increased, Racial tensions at the workplace significantly increased over the past two, three years. Those pose great risk to our businesses. And I think it's, it's a healthy look for us to take a look at our risks, measure those risks, report those to the chief risk officer. We need to help the chief risk officer marry those risks to the other risks that the organization is taking a look at to give senior leadership better guidance on uh, the risk to our organization, what's new, and how we need to deal with it. So you started in this industry as a millennial. Theoretically. Theoretically. I think it was a Gen Xer, but in you today's were terms, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a millennial. But in today's right? terms, right, yeah, right. Yeah. you were a millennial. So I had the chance to go to the millennial panel, if you will, called Innovative Leadership Perspectives from Future Leaders. Special shout out to Sam Gruber from PNC, Daniela McCoy from Health Partners Plans, and Bogdana Sardak from Fusion. I really liked actually how they had this panel set up for two reasons. One, it was actually millennials <laughs> on the panel. They were, versus, they were actual millennials. Versus boomers right. complaining about <laughs> about millennials. But secondly, what I appreciated that they did was they were asking the boomers questions and the boomers or the Gen Xers in the audience were giving them feedback and their perspective. And there was one gentleman who asked a really good question because the millennials were sharing their feedback and their concerns and their frustrations about executive sponsorship, buy-in, um, change, and navigating the political landscape of the organizations that we support. And it just seemed like the responses that they were getting were exactly what they were talking about. 
So this gentleman in the audience said, if you had to rate this room of Gen Xers and Boomers on a scale of one to five about how disruptive we are, what would you rate us? And it was a really good question. And it came from a Gen Xer or a Boomer. I don't know how old he was. The millennials thought about it and they were brutally honest and they said, I'd, I'd give this room a two and your disruptiveness, innovativeness, right? right. Um, so my question to you, just with that in, in mind, starting your career as what we would call a millennial today. Sure. What is your advice to the new generation to be successful in our industry? Well, first of all, I, I, again, let's be inclusive, right? I am encouraged by uh, the millennial generation coming through our industry, um, understanding being inclusive, including others and not being afraid to do so from technology, from risk, from IT security, the, the, the more, what I'm seeing with, with uh, I don't wanna just paint a broad stroke, but I'm encouraged by the inclusiveness that they bring. So that's great, they're already, do, they're already doing that, so that's a personal belief of mine. I'm also uh, very encouraged of their concern over environmental impacts in our industry. That's something that I need to learn from, and quite frankly, uh, I think a, a number of uh, people should should learn from, so they they can teach us. So that that's fantastic. There's also a work environment which they are used to working in, which quite frankly, us Gen Xers and baby boomers were used to recovering offices and desks and computers, and you go into more uh, uh, younger office environments and 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 those that are very millennial forward i guess right and it's very open air and it's very remote and it's very collaborative you don't have an office you're sitting around a large table all day and you are being very collaborative with your teammates you're exchanging ideas all day and how does that change our recoverability do we really need all this office space for recovery or do we need strategies to continue on uh, working as a team in in some sort of disaster scenario I'm really encouraged by uh, what the new generations can bring in, quite frankly, teach us. Where um, I would encourage, and, the, and this is what I learned early in my career, is to, while there's some really cool stuff going on in our industry, I think we need to think like a senior executive and learn more about how others receive your message. Read the audience, right? When you're making a presentation to senior leadership, you need to read the audience, you need to be brief very succinct, go into the weeds only if asked, right? And then turn around to another group who need to go into the weeds to be very technical, right? Read your audience, right? Let's, let's not make assumptions of, uh, you know, that, that your message is the best. What I would also, in, also encourage is what I've learned early on is to measure activity. Again, we pay our people a certain salary, they work a certain amount of hours, they get certain benefits, all that can be monetized. So if we can work more effectively, sometimes using software more effectively, yes, you, you pay something for that, but there's a great run rate cost reduction that can be gained if it's applied effectively. So measure what people are doing and how does that equate to money that's being spent on these people? I'm not saying you have the opportunity to cut people. What I'm saying is an organization is paying somebody for their skill set not necessarily to do rote work, but to advance that organization. So the more that we can focus on run rate cost reduction and taking that money or those resources and applying it to advance organization, have a good understanding, try and understand how senior leaders think, work, act, how they make decisions. 
Therefore, they, the, the millennials can be more effective in teaching us what to do, but also being much more effective in uh, communicating with their senior leaders that they're going to ultimately have to do to be better leaders themselves. Awesome. Thank you very much for sharing that. If you work with a millennial or any other type of person inside of your organization, this is a great time to hit that share button <laughs> <laughs> and share this insight. So I want to get to know you. Um, what's your favorite place to eat? Oh, tonight I am going to Citizen Public House in Old Town, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. But if you were, it's a fantastic restaurant. But uh, if you were to ask my weaknesses, it's that empty bag of potato chips sitting right in front of you, <laughs> Vanessa, and ice cream. I've just got a complete weakness for, for those two items. Ah, okay. <laughs> so where can our listeners find you? You can find me on LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter and our uh, uh, website at continuitylogic.com. And is your name Phil Biggie on Twitter? Because I'm My about to follow you right Phil now. My name is Phil Biggie on Twitter. What? You will see occasional stress on my Twitter about uh, either my Philadelphia sports teams. Generally, I uh, uh, make positive comments about our industry. And uh, on uh, LinkedIn, I like to encourage um, people to be better practitioners and better leaders and like to promote the good of our industry. So again, I think my message to everybody here is be adaptive to change, be open to uh, various ideas, ultimately make the decision and do what is right for your organization. Well, there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to Business Resilience Decoded with the Disaster Recovery Journal and Asphalus Advisors. Subscribe, share, download, and look out for future episodes. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Business Resilience Decoded is produced and edited by John Seals. For more information, visit drj.com slash decoded and asphalusadvisors.com slash decoded. Write to us on Twitter at BRDecoded.